Hello and welcome to another Linguistics Career Cast, the podcast devoted to exploring careers for linguists outside academia. I'm your host, Laurel Sutton. Today's guest is anti-bias consultant and linguist Suzanne Wertheim. After getting her PhD in linguistics from UC Berkeley, Suzanne held faculty positions at Northwestern, University of Maryland, and UCLA. In 2011, she left the university system in order to apply her expertise to real-world problems. Suzanne has done fieldwork with speakers as diverse as Tatar nationalists in the former Soviet Union, Native Americans in Central California, comedians in Los Angeles, and female engineers in San Francisco and Silicon Valley. She now runs Worthwhile Research and Consulting, which specializes in analyzing and addressing bias at work. Her book, The Field Guide to Inclusive Language, is an essential resource for anyone interested in inclusive language. It's out now. Links to order the book and other resources we discuss are in the show notes. Suzanne, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I am so delighted to have you on here because you're amazing, you have a new book, and also because we're friends and I love talking with you. I mean, it's the first time I think I've ever talked to you through a microphone and a computer. <laughs> so there's a way in which I like I want to describe to you where I'm sitting and what I'm wearing and you know, like I've put on like a a Nissan Non Cultural Center sweatshirt in honor of our call. But you can't see it, so I just have to tell you about it. But I, I'm delighted to be here. It's fantastic. For listeners, uh, unlike most of the people that, that I have talked to for this podcast so far, Suzanne and I were actually in graduate school together um, back in, what, the late 1800s or something? It feels like it was that long ago. That is how I describe it. Since I'm saying that I feel like I'm 100-something years old, like, let's just go with 19th century. Yeah, 19th century. So um, it we did a lot of things, and some of that I want to touch on as, as you're, you're talking about your story. But um, I remember when we worked together and I remember all the things that you did and you always struck me as a, an extremely organized and motivated person. So it is no surprise to me that you now have this career and that you've written a really cool book, which we are going to talk about in the second half of this podcast. So I would like to start by asking, as I do for most people who come on the show, tell us how you got started in linguistics. And when you were an undergrad, did you know what linguistics was? So when I was an undergrad, there was one linguistics class offered at my university, Duke University. Mm -hmm. And I think it was housed in the English department. And I was an English major undergrad. And I took it because it was interesting to me. And um, I remember still, oh my God, impressing the class when uh, here echoes of my future, foreshadowing of my future, when uh, the person who was teaching the professor asked about the word hysterical and if it felt gender to anybody. And mm -hmm. I said, oh, well, the root is um, for the Greek word for uterus. And so I'm going to guess that it really is gendered female, though I haven't thought about it. And everybody stared at me. And I thought, huh, like that was not, <laughs> I guess maybe that's why it took me a while. But um, so that was the one class that I took. I liked it a lot, but there weren't other things. And I was, as I was saying, an English undergrad, and I was being very much groomed to go to grad school for English mm -hmm. um, at a time when it was already quite bad for English professors. Now the job market is so, so what it is. But mm -hmm. even um, in the late 19th century, when I was an undergrad um, at Duke, the, the guy who got um, 
the fancy job who came in, he was one of 600 people. And that's again in the, okay. in the late, in the late 19th century. I mean, it was like uh-huh. the, one of the top places for English yeah. in the country, but it was a foreshadowing. So yeah, I thought I was going to do an English degree. And as I was writing my senior honors thesis on mechanisms of comedy and social commentary in Oscar Wilde's work, mm-hmm. I started reading things and like sort of the new way that people were writing. It was kind of postmodernist, the new ways that people were writing about English and literature. And it had no resonance for me. And honestly, a lot mm. of it seemed like, oh, you said I could curse. Just piles of bullshit. And mm-hmm. I, I would read an article about Oscar Wilde and I wouldn't have taken any notes. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, this just feels very um, tautological. Yeah. And so I uh, literally burned in frustration my grad school applications as a senior. And then I was kind of adrift for a while. It took me five years to get to linguistics grad school. Wow. I had a very similar thing happen to me as an English major when I was doing undergrad. It it all felt so self-reflexive and repetitive. And it was reading what somebody said about what somebody said about what somebody said about what somebody said about Oscar Wilde or Shakespeare or whatever. And I thought, what is the point of this? This isn't helping me. And the linguistics classes that I took were just so practical in some ways, you know, like you could really take a linguistics class and and start to understand things about language that maybe you'd never thought about before. And that was the inciting incident for me. So what was the inciting incident for you that actually sent you on your quest for linguistics? (laughs) All right, we're going to get into it. It, I'm, I'm, you're, <laughs> I'm just uh-huh. laughing, thinking about like little 22-year-old, 23-year-old me. So I was working as a technical writer. So I didn't go to grad school. I moved to Boston because I didn't need a car. There was a good music scene and I could have a nice apartment for not that much money, live with a friend. And then I really did not care for the technical writing. Mm. Um, I was very condescended to. I had a baby face and you know me in person. I mean, mm-hmm. you, I had a baby face when we met. I, I'm short. I'm very femi looking. I'm ambiguously ethnic, even though I'm technically white on the census. And so so a, a powerhouse of condescension mm-hmm, was mm-hmm. aimed in my direction. And I was doing what I would now characterize as early UX. I would go back to the to the people writing code and say, well, I'm I'm documenting this and this doesn't seem to it seems kind of an awkward sequence. What if you redid it so the the user did this instead? And they would basically pat me on the head and be like, oh, cute little technical writer girl is telling me stuff. And I was just like, so the fury would build up, even though I was taught to tamp it down, the fury would build up. And finally I was like, what do I have to do to get men to listen to me? Also, I, I knew I had a good brain and it felt like it was being squandered in a certain way. I don't want to demean technical writing. There's lots of really important work to be done, but I felt very boxed in by what I was doing and I felt kind of like a price is right model. Years later, I would live one block away from the price is right. But at the time, I felt like I, I was, um, picture me smiling broadly and holding my hands up, holding something in it and being like, the boys wrote code. Like, look <laughs> at the nice code the boys wrote. I felt like that was my life. And I was like, expletive, expletive, expletive. And so I I went to a career coach and I, people would say things to me like, you don't seem like someone who's a terminal bachelor's. You know, like you seem like someone who goes to grad school. And so I'm laughing because I serially dated bike messengers in my early 20s in Boston. (laughs) And I was at a party and a very cute boy was flirting with me. And he had just gone to the Summer Institute of Linguistics. So he was talking himself up by talking about it. And I'm like, tell me more, cute 
cute man. Um, and so he told me more. And I started going to the MIT Press bookstore and buying books on linguistics because I had that one course and starting to read things. <laughs> not Chomsky and syntax. Uh, I, I never cared for it. And I'm okay having not gone into it. But um, I, yeah, I just started teaching myself autodidactically as, as a thing I've done a lot in my life. And then I, I'm going to laugh again. Stephen Pinker's book, The Language Instinct, came out. <laughs> I'm laughing because um, now so many people who do what I do are so against so much of what he says and so many questionable affiliations that he has. This is correct. I, I Unfortunately, it has happened to him. I don't know when the brain worm started, but uh, he's not the linguist he used to be. He is not. And so in 94, I think, Maybe maybe ninety three, the language instinct came out, and I went and I went up to him at a book reading and signing. He was just starting out; he wasn't a, a name yet, just a fancy professor with big hair and tiny purple shorts. When he would jog alongside the river in Cambridge, I would see him sometimes. And I said to him, "I think I want to go to linguistics grad school and be a linguist. Can you recommend someone for me to talk to?" And he said, "You can talk to me." And I said, "But you're." on a national book tour. And he said, do you have something called electronic mail? And I was a nerd. <laughs> and I did. This is how long ago this is. And I did. I had an ISP, a local Boston ISP. And I said, I do have email. Yeah. So he said, email me. And so we met twice and he was very, very kind to me. I'm so sorry mm -hmm. that he has gone so downhill. But at the time, and he was barely condescending when it came to gender. He said, I wouldn't let you in my program. And I'm like, oh, he said, you just don't have enough hard science because he was doing a cog side thing at mm -hmm. the time that required more hard science that I had mostly avoided undergrad. He said, but here, and he gave me backstory on who would this and that. And he's like, it sounds like you're data oriented. So maybe Berkeley would be a good fit. At a time that PS, I got waitlisted at, at MIT, mm -hmm. I got into Berkeley mm -hmm. I got waitlisted at MIT. They had me come in and they said the worst things to me. But um, they said things like, uh, MIT said, well, we haven't seen any of your work. You've only taken this one undergrad. What if you audit for a year and then maybe we'll decide to let you in? And I was like, but Berkeley's giving me a full ride. Like, why? Yeah. Why in the world would I do that? And then they would rant about Berkeley and how of course, um, unscientific and hippy dippy mm -hmm. and uh, actually let women become full professors, they were. Um, the only women I saw in the halls back in the late 19th century at MIT linguistics were secretaries in high heels, yeah. looking very morose. So uh, I, I was very thankful that I didn't get in because it helped me uh, not go. So that's the that's how I ended up at Berkeley. So you know, I wanted to say to them, well, Pinker said Berkeley's fine. And then Berkeley was very welcoming. And they're like, well, we've got some ideological disagreements with Chomsky and linguistics, and some of us were trained in that, and then we left, and now we have more of a, a functional approach. But the, the, the Berkeley framework uh, was a lot more resonant. And I'll say one more thing that I, I had to take it out of my book, but my favorite ever Daffy Duck line here's should have also been an inciting incident. Daffy Duck walks up to Bugs Bunny, having his beak blown off yet another time, and he says, that's it pronoun trouble. Yes. That's it. Pronoun trouble. And I tried to work it into my book and my developmental editor said, it's just, we, we have, it's not, we have to take it out. But for me, that was, that was it. It was just um, data trouble. Like I needed data. I needed data. And without data, I felt ungrounded and sad and sort of bereft and like things were pointless. But if you took the language 
and the, even the rhetoric, and then added data and data analysis, suddenly everything fell into place and made sense for me. And that's how you and I met. Yeah. So my strongest memories of working with you were when we were doing the Women in Language Conference, mm. which for people who don't know, there had been a Berkeley Women in Language Conference in the 17th century um, <laughs> that was organized by some women in the department. It was quite groundbreaking at the time. And there was a, a beautiful little um, proceedings that came out of it. And then nothing happened for, uh, gosh, do you even know how many years there was no conference? It was like eight years or something. It was a long I know, time. I don't know. It was before my time. And so some of the people that we know in common had picked it up and then handed off for me. I, I was the mm -hmm. last torchbearer of that mm -hmm. conference, by the way. So um, me and Mary Buckles and Kira mm -hmm. Hall uh, and Anita Liang uh, and other folks as well. Yeah, we, we kind of picked it up and, and started it again. And it turned out to be pretty fantastic and got to meet Ursula Le Guin, which was pretty awesome. And um, some other folks. I brought, her, I brought her in. It was so good. It was so amazing to have her there. And um, Susie Bright was there also one year, oh. which was also incredible. Yeah. So it was a big deal. And I am curious now, I, I know we've talked about this a little bit, but um, because of that experience, I tend to think of you as somebody who's really interested in gender and, you know, empowering language and, and things like that. But it doesn't sound like that's what you came into Berkeley to do. Um, how do you feel like you ended up doing the Women in Language Conference? Do you know, I think it's similar to, I consult for a lot of companies where people end up doing DEI work, anti-bias mm -hmm. work. Maybe they run a, an a employee affiliation group, uh, an ERG, or they volunteer for the DEI council. And it's just because they're a member of a marginalized or stigmatized or underrepresented group and they care and it's a second shift. And so for me, I think it's similar. In the end, I backed into what I'm going to call contextualized language use and contextualized mm -hmm. analysis because I want to be sort of agnostic as to the various um, discipline and subdisciplinary names out there. Um, but I think it's a similar thing where people were like, well, she's got her shit together and she's nice. Can we bring her on? You know, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. and so I was just like, ooh, the fancy older people, you know, the fancy ahead of me people want me in. And then retrospectively, I'm so grateful. So Retrospectively, I'm grateful. Let me finish that thought and then I'm going to back up. Retrospectively, I'm grateful because I soaked in proceedings for a few years, you know, and like, and when I was running it, when I was the last person, and then I worked with people to transform it into the International Gender and Language Association, mm -hmm. which is still going strong. Yeah. And I rented a pickup truck and I and I drove boxes of proceedings down to Penny Eckert's office down at Stanford, <laughs> you know, on the not yet crowded highways of the Bay Area, because in the late 19th century, driving was a lot easier here. And uh, I still remember. And now it's it, because we were like, this needs to be more infrastructure. Like, this can't mm -hmm, be a mm -hmm. side thing. But my soaking in so much data, so much analysis, and so much respectful interaction. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I'm about to invite Charles Briggs, who is a linguistic anthropologist at, at Berkeley now, whose work I have admired for decades, for decades. I'm about to invite him to my book launch in Berkeley, which at the time we're recording is in about a month. And I'm not sure if he'll remember me, but I remember him because he applied to be, even though he was fancy, he just sent in an abstract mm -hmm. to that last conference and he showed up and he was so respectful. Mm -hmm. The vibe of that conference, I've never been to another one like it where people were, 
not grandstanding, not mm-hmm. peacocking, not sea lioning, not whatever other animal terms we use for people who are behaving badly in conferences. Um, it was just this most generative, cooperative, collaborative, energizing conference, even though it wasn't my area of interest, um, that stuck with me as a, as a model. And so I, I'm going to write to him and be like, you know, I'm not sure if you remember me. We used to talk when I was at UCLA and I think he was at Santa Barbara. But um, just that that kind of respect. Now we talk about ally work. At the time, we weren't talking about ally work. But to me, that was such an ally move to say, oh, I've got stuff that's relevant and I'm just going to come in and hold my place and not try to take up more mm-hmm. space or time than is my want. So, Yeah, I, I totally agree. That was my experience too. It was all of the women in language conferences were just so uplifting and the scholarship that came out of them in the form of the proceedings were just amazing. Um, really deep and wide and um, well-written, well-researched. Everything was so good. And the, the kicker of it all was that I don't ever remember being congratulated by any yeah. of the faculty ever. I, I will. <laughs> or, I will say or that attended, attended. None attended? of the faculty attended. Yeah. I am still bitter. I'm not going to name names uh, on microphone, but a person who is faculty scheduled a regional phonetics phonology conference for the same weekend as the one that I was running. So all of my phonetics phonology people disappeared mm-hmm. who were going to be volunteers. And I walked into his office and I said, can't you reschedule? Why are you doing this? And he said, but there's no overlap. And I said, have you heard of sociophonetics? <laughs> have you heard of... Uh, this person also did something that I use as a what not to do example when I talk about um, expressions of bias in the workplace for universities. So, you know, I, I, I've I've seen this person be bad. But that kind of marginalization, mm-hmm. I felt it so strongly in multiple ways as an academic and as I started to do contextualized language work. So I'll tell you, I came in thinking I was going to do cognitive linguistics Mm -hmm. because I was coming from writing about computers and computational languages. And I thought, but human language acquisition and natural languages are so much more interesting. But as a perspective, again, I'm not going to name names. I got some very iffy feelings when I met with some professors who I would be working closely with if that was my subfield. And Mm -hmm. I had been in the working world enough to know what sexual harassment smelled like in the early phases. And I said, I don't think so. And I backed out. And so I was really just looking around when you and I met. Mm -hmm. I was no longer on that path and I wasn't sure what to do. And I ended up being very interested in historical linguistics and language endangerment were the Mm -hmm. two areas that I found the most intriguing. And so I learned two languages and threw myself into provincial Russia for a year and change and did a dissertation. And I was interested in a very grammatical, grammatical question. And in fact, I no one was more surprised than me when half my dissertation turned out to be morphosyntax because those were the la- like that was the last thing but i was thinking okay here are the ways languages change here are the ways that there's contact induced change and here are the ways that endangered languages seem to shrink and so my question was sort of broadly if you have in contact a dominant language uh, that's high prestige and a minority language that is stigmatized, that is low prestige, and the minority language is contracting, how is it, what is the mechanism of the grammatical change? Because your dominant language is grammatically unchanged. It may borrow a few nouns. 
It may borrow some curse words. It may borrow a verb or two. But for the most part, you have, as languages contract, significant, significant grammatical change. And the answer turned out to be social and cultural. And so mm-hmm. that is why I'm saying how I backed in. At the time that I was running that um, the last uh, conference for Berkeley Women in Language Group, which was, P.S., the largest gender and language <laughs> conference in the world. We mm-hmm. would have people flying in from everywhere yeah. and still completely ignored and marginalized by our <laughs> by our faculty for the most part. Yeah, I ended up, because all of the linguistic anthropologists had left uh, Berkeley, uh, eventually Bill Hanks came after I'd finished my dissertation, but the way that he approached things was so different from what was providing answers for my own stuff. Mm-hmm. So I ended up having to teach myself the foundations of linguistic anthropology to figure out in a concrete way, these contextual factors that were affecting the grammar of this contact induced change. That's quite a journey. I, I don't think you could ever have seen the end of it when, when you came in there. Just to to jump back very quickly, when I've asked people about why they decided to leave academia, I've gotten a lot of different answers. But something that I think runs as an undercurrent is the sort of thing that you were just talking about. And it certainly was that for me, the constant marginalization, um, the constant devaluing of the work that we were doing in things that were very important the Women in Language Conference being one of them, and just generally the way women got treated in our department, uh, especially if you were into sociolinguistics as opposed to some of the other things. And it was really depressing. And I left thinking that industry would be better, and it is in some ways, and it's not in other ways. Mm. But the structures that are in place in academia really support that kind of devaluation of work. And I don't think it's changed very much since I left from what I'm hearing from other people, sadly. I I don't think so either, because sometimes universities bring me in to run my foundational anti-bias series and talk about how in very precise terms, what are the ways that language is expressing bias? And I pull out stories or I'll interview them and say, oh, you're bringing me in. What have faculty done? What have they said to grad students? What have they said to staff? And they say the things I'm like, yeah, sure. I'm like, I've got other ones in my database. I've got ones where I pretend like I'm not the one involved, you know, mm-hmm. or I'll, I'll talk about, oh, my friend overheard this, but it's just me, you know? So, and for me also, I was marginalized in so many ways. I, um, I, I was across a few fields. So my, my dissertation has People would push. I never turned my dissertation into a book. And I'm like, well, I'm waiting for a tenure clock. I'm like, it's two thirds done, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. I'm not publishing it without getting credit. And then people were like, well, you should publish it also as a book. And I'm like, but almost no, I'm like, I can count on my, like, no, and toes, hands and toes. There are probably 15 people who can follow me from the macro social, political science and sociological intro of the book down to the morphosyntactic change at the end Mm -hmm. of it, right? And then the formal model of contact-induced change related to what I call discourse pragmatic words. Like nobody cared about right. the stuff like and and I did I was looking at Turkic so I would go to anthropology conferences and everyone would swarm the Mexican languages but nobody cared about the post-Soviet languages mm-hmm. and I would go to a linguistics conference but nobody cared about con- context and context and do stuff I left the LSA when I was presenting and there were two sociolinguistics panels and they were scheduled at the same time. And I'm like, <laughs> there's like, what a, what a slap in the face. Like, uh-huh. is, is there a stronger way to tell me that I don't care, that you don't, that you don't care about the stuff I do? Yeah, so, exactly. I mean, I was at UCLA, I was a visiting professor. I kept on almost getting jobs and then losing them to white men. Um, so at a certain point, I'm like, 
like the data recognition is kicking in. I'm like, oh, like a, a mouthy Jew lady does, you know, like who's sarcastic mm-hmm. and is speaking up in, in authoritative ways when she's supposed to look all subordinate and speak submissively. You know, I was pissing off white guys and the sort of academic-y uh, old boys network, the waspy culture where you're never supposed to talk about the value of work, mm-hmm. um, where you're not supposed to advocate for marginalized mm-hmm. people, where you're not supposed to point out unfairness and and show how things need to be fixed. I mean, yeah, that's all still in place. And so academia likes to think it's better than, but the um, just like I'm, you know, a few feet from Berkeley, Berkeley likes to think it's better than the, the city, but I've got plenty of uh, data about race-based expressions of bias mm-hmm. that happened in Berkeley. Berkeley people are like, oh, Alabama. I'm like, Psh. like, no, it's right, right here, right here. Yeah. So, yeah. Definitely. Well, it's what people say when, when you are seen, when someone sees you, really sees you, it is like an epiphany because then you are are not thinking that you were the crazy one the whole time. Someone else sees the reality that's happening. So let's get back to your journey. So I'm curious now, after you got your PhD, did you really think you were going to stay in academia? Like, was there a glimmer that you were going to not be a professor or a, a researcher of some sort? None. None. I was uh, trained in an R1 that was very fancy. Mm-hmm. So Berkeley, a very prestigious linguistics department. I had gotten a full ride. And then when one of my professors said, you should probably add uh, this kind of model to your dissertation, I'm like, but I can't do it in time to file this year. And he said, we'll find you funding for the year. I mean, they were good to me in that way, in a way that other people weren't. Like I was being told, you're important, your work is important. So I finished my dissertation in November and then I was funded. I couldn't file till the spring because they funded me for the year. I mean, a pittance, mm-hmm. uh, the, the pittanciest of pittances, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I think it was 12K in Tech Boom Berkeley, mm-hmm. you know, but yeah, so I was told I was, I was, I was brainwashed into the cult in many ways. And, and also since childhood, I'd been told that my contribution to the world was my brain and my contribution to the world was figuring out problems and then coming up with clever solutions for them. And so Mm -hmm. in this case, it was the problems were the problems of language endangerment or or pedagogy of let's teach people interesting stuff about linguistics and linguistic anthropology. So I was very, very much um, that. And and so I I got a postdoc at Northwestern. That was a very nice postdoc, a Mellon postdoc. And um, then I worked for two years at a research institute at University of Maryland, with government clients, which retrospectively really taught me a lot, but at the time made me miserable because it was very much at odds with so many things that I think of as important. Like um, I had to get top security clearance in order to get that job because of some of the government clients, none of whom were mine. And because of the facility we were in, I think somebody had a spy movie in his head was like, you know, like the CIA is going to come and we'll be able to hide them because we're on campus, but all of our blinds are shut. And we've got, oh my God, Edward Snowden was my uh, security guard for like my last three months there um, because he was on his way to getting clearance. Um, So you know, it was just very much at odds with a lot of my government clients didn't want real research. They just wanted to have the idea of research that upheld the decision they'd already made. Mm -hmm. And so I remember getting screamed at by, uh, will not name large institution that involves teaching language because I had said, uh, the project I was leading, I said, well, it turns out that if you hire more faculty and have smaller classes with more access to faculty, that's better than, I think it was iPods, 
because uh, now we've moved into the early 20th mm-hmm, century. Mm-hmm. So it was iPods and tablets. And I think it was maybe a kickback to his friend or something, you know, so he wanted, he really wanted the tech solution. So a red with rage man is screaming at me. I don't remember what his rank was, but it was high. And I was like, I don't want this job. So I got rescued and I was a visiting professor at UCLA where some people wanted me to stay forever. And other people, in retrospect, I retrospectively understood like, oh, you did not want me there at all. And so that is the contingency that when I was finally up for the tenure track job, which looked in many ways like it was written for me, and it was by some people, um, but I did not get that job. And by then, I was so tired in certain ways of um, going up for jobs and not getting them, but then I, I didn't want the jobs. So it was this strange thing of like when you're rejected by someone you want to date, but you actually don't want to date. Like you just want to be in a solid relationship, but then the mm-hmm. people you keep on dating, you're like, I, not this one. And I felt that way with jobs. I'm like, well, I don't want to live in New York City and make 55 a year. Like, no. And I don't want to move to Eugene, where I'm the darkest person I'm seeing in Mm -hmm. any space and I'm single. And like Hawaii seems nice, but I don't think it's aligned with my extracurricular interests. Like I don't like to have friends who are only academics. And so by the time I was up for this job at UCLA, I, um, I had an epiphany the day before they told me that I didn't get the job. And it was, and by then I already had been consulting and building up a nest egg. And I thought things like, I, I I want a family. I want to own a house. I want to have a, a a life. I want to have vacations that, you know, like for me, academia is so strange in that it's so infantilizing in that it takes away all your time, but also most of your money. And so I would tell my grad students secretly, I'm like, for your other professors, tell them how busy you are. Complain about how exhausted you are. Like when you're dissertating, don't make the mistake I made where you're like an ascetic nun and filled with misery and waking up at 5 a.m. with fear. And most of your dissertation is written between 6 and 8 a.m. because you're so frantic. And then you read it late in their day and you're like, did I write that this morning? Because your brain is in such a different space. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you can only write three hours a day, maybe four. I'm like, please spend the rest of the time on self-care. Please go for walks. Please go to the beach. You know what's not going to end if you're not writing your dissertation? Like the world. Like you're fine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're fine. I'm like, but don't tell other professors because there was this entire, this whole idea. I think it's the idea that if you're very busy or very important, UCLA Linguistic Uh Anthropology is tippity, tippity top, tippity top. Like that in, in University of Chicago, there's none more prestigious in in the world. And still there was nothing for, you know, they would go to like a tiny college in a tiny town in a state maybe they didn't want to live in, you know? And I'm Mm -hmm. like, how this, I was like, it sat so badly with me. So um, I had this epiphany and the next day, uh, the chair of the department, they were too cowardly to tell me themselves. So the chair told me, she says, it's abominable that they're not, she didn't say abominable. I'm just saying that. But she said something like, it's egregious that they're not going to tell you, but I want you to know that you're not getting this job. And I'm like, okay. And then I had a very difficult four months of sort of cult deep programming. Mm-hmm. And I already mm-hmm. was doing consulting work. I knew it would be, I had a bridge job lined up. I could just go and work 30 hours a week for this job. I'd been doing 10 hours a week. I could just up it. Like I had a foot out the door for years and it still was a complete reorientation and reevaluation mm-hmm. of my life, my merit. Who would my friends be? Yeah. You know, like it, it's so all encompassing. I'm fine now. I mean, it took me a, a couple of years to not feel a sting. 
and now I can walk on any campus and be like, yeah, sure. Like, you yep. know, not, not yep. a problem, it, but it, it was took hard. me 10 years to do yep. it. It just, it took a long time. And it's, I think it's something again, that never gets talked about by anybody, but the grieving for the person that you were as an academic, it's a real thing and you have to go through it and go through whatever rituals you need to do to make it okay that, that you're not doing that. And to have the, I don't know if strength is the right word, maybe it's force field that I'm thinking of, for people who will say the most insensitive things. And <laughs> for me, because I didn't get my PhD, when I would inc run into people after I'd left the Berkeley program, even five years later, they would say, did you finish your PhD? And I would say, no, I didn't. You know, I was there, I got my master's, I'm ABD. And they would say, that's too bad. And here I am running a successful business and enjoying my life, but still the only thing they could think of to say was, that's too bad with that very pitying, patronizing, like, wow, you made the biggest mistake of your life by not finishing that PhD. And that just shook me every time someone would say it. And it took me 10 years to build up the force field so that when people said it, I could say to them, no, it's not too bad, actually. My life is great now. I love it. And it was hard. I mean, and so I, I um, in some of my workshops, I talk about hierarchy marking. So this is stuff that I would talk about in my intro Lingand courses. I, I would have a thing I called the big six. I'm like, here are the six things you need to know about any given you know, speech event, communicative event. If you can figure out these six things, um, you can really get a grip on what's going on. And my first one was hierarchies, my number one, because human beings, and I, I have to now um, do a caveat uh, for autistic speakers, I'm, I'm working now on integrating autistic communication norms, uh, into my work, which I am so horrified by the ways that we were teaching people. And I was taught that such and such communication norm is universal, or this interpretation is universal. So hierarchies are universally marked, but interpreted differently by autistic communicators and often just not as interesting or important seeming. And so this is one of the reasons why allistic speakers, so allistic as opposed to autistic, allistic speakers often will find uh, autistic speakers rude when the thing is that there's a different value system and a different weighting for what's going on. But when I, when I teach about hierarchies, and now I have to say train, because when you say teach to adults, they get angry, apparently. I don't mind being taught, but whatever. Um, so when I train people about hierarchies, I point out how embedded they are. I'll use military hierarchies as an example, but military and I think academia are the strongest and most fine-grained hierarchies. And they're presented as if, as if they're universal. I mean, so there's like the grades and then there's the grades within the grades. And then there's a ranking within your grade. And then there's ranking of universities. And then there's ranking of professor levels. And there's ranking of like, you can sort out everything. And then PS, the hierarchies of linguistics did not care for contextualized language analysis. That was low hierarchy and didn't think that industry applications and research, those are low hierarchy. So when people are almost monocultural, there are ways in which I've done consulting work on how do you take a monocultural young person who maybe is uh, in the armed forces and you drop them in somewhere else, how do you educate them, not only in sort of local customs, but in the idea of cultural variability? How do you take a monocultural person and explain 
mean that the world isn't monocultural and things that you've thought of as natural and normal and universal are actually quite specific to your culture. That gravity is universal, but shaking your head to me, no, isn't. And you might shoot somebody because they're shaking their head because for them, it means I didn't understand you, right? So when I think about these things, I look and I look at people who've only been in academic frameworks. I worked for five years before grad school. I worked during grad school. I consulted as a professor, you know? So for a lot of the time I had my foot in, sometimes it was just financial need, but also it was it was so good for my brain to get these different ways of looking at the world. But a lot of people are still monocultural in a way that I feel um, sorry for them. And I'm like, you're disdainful of me, huh? You know, like mm-hmm. you're, you're, you've got these blinders on that are so strong that you don't even see, um, so much of the world and it's, and it's value. So. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and it's all the hierarchies that you're just, um, delineating there. I mean, it, it's all part of the marginalization, right? Because if you're low in the hierarchy, it's very easy to marginalize those people because they really don't count much in the big scheme of things. And so it's natural, right? It's just a natural thing. Absolutely. I call it the hypotenuse because the second most common expression of bias in in interactions is uh, marginalization, pushing out. So I say to people, it's not pushing down and or pushing out. It's a hypotenuse at the same time, right? So it's like vertical axis down, horizontal axis out. But I'm like, no, it's the hypotenuse out and down at the same time, out Mm -hmm. and down, out and down. And everybody, I'm like, you all have an example in your heads as I'm saying this. And anyone I can see on a Zoom call will not. And in person, everyone would be like, Mm -hmm. oh yeah, I know an out and down. So yeah. So I was over it. I granted myself tenure. I started my own company and Mm -hmm. I said, you have tenure done. But um, it still took a long time to feel okay. P.S. When I started going to, uh, when I came back and I would start to go to, for example, a, a former advisor's birthday party, as things get worse and worse in academia, suddenly people talk to you more. Like they sidle yeah. over and they're like, huh, like I, like things are really bad. And what do you do? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, this this is the huge problem. You know, we were recognizing it. You were just talking about it when, um, all of these people are coming out of R1 institutions and there were few jobs. Now there are no jobs Mm. and the pickings for the jobs that there are, you know, the few and far between are insane. You're competing with thousands of people and you have to perhaps work in places that might not be safe for you personally or Mm. are, you know, just not acceptable as a place for you to establish your life. And the, the model, the hierarchical model of academia, of course, is that when you make a choice to accept a tenure track position, you're going to be there for the next 30 years, right? It's not like mm-hmm. going to work for a company and if you don't like it, you leave and get another one or you transfer to a different office or you work remotely. It's not the same at all. And it's another one of those things that nobody ever talks about within academia. Well, and and the process, the cycle is so long and so ridiculous. And so Mm -hmm. my dad was an engineer and I would get ghosted regularly, regularly by universities who I'd had uh, a conference interview with. And then I know people, I'm not sure if I would, this ever happened to me. Thank God I, I'm not holding on to it. But I know people who are, by the way, top in the field who were ghosted after a campus visit, literally never told. Jeez. So my dad, you know, moved from engineering into sales. And he's like, well, should you make a call and, and see what's happening? And I'm like, dad, like when the academic year starts and I'm not professoring, they'll uh-huh. notice that I like, it's not like they forgot to tell me, oh, Suzanne didn't, isn't, she said, signed up for courses, you know, to teach. I was like, they're just incredible. He, he, he couldn't fathom 
he couldn't fathom that level of rudeness where I right. had done all this prep work. So right. plus, yeah. plus, I, I, you know, making the suggestion that you call when you said that in my mind, the sentence was, oh, no, you're not allowed to do that. Right. Like as a, as a lowly person who's applying for a job, the, like you calling the university office to ask, like, no, you never do that. You have to wait till they get in touch with you. You know, and it's funny how long that kind of inculcation stays with you. And so there are ways that I have to be self-promoting because I run my own consultancy and I'm very deeply uncomfortable with it still. And, um, and, and I think it's partly because of how I was raised in a familial way, but also a, a very natural affinity for the messages I was being told by um, academia. You have to be unbelievably good and acquire all of these difficult skills. And you can't ask for anything. And if you mm-hmm. do ask for something, we will give you negative feedback that tells yes. you you were wrong to ask for it and you will be yes. punished. Yes, exactly. And so right. many of us, and it's sort of like a good, it gets very gendered too. So for many mm-hmm. of us who were raised female and are female, that, that ties in with this whole like good girl model. I think for a lot of people coming out of academia, You don't recognize how much value you have, but you have Mm -hmm, so much mm -hmm, value in mm -hmm. terms of your ability to recognize patterns, analyze a situation quickly, write up what's going on a clear, coherent way. There are so many ways you can add value. And so like, I market myself through what's called content marketing, which insert gagging noise, right? And apparently I'm called a thought leader now, which also I'm like, please, (laughs) like, please. But um. But I offer value to people. People find me and I get business because I wrote an analysis of a topical event on LinkedIn and or in my newsletter Mm -hmm. and someone found it useful and it found its way into somebody who said, oh, I like this approach. And then they bring me in. So I was offering for free what is for other people very expensive advice Mm -hmm. and or training. And by that way, I, I can market myself by always providing value. And I think that's a good crutch for people who are hobbled by this idea that they're not allowed to make a mark in the world or have a voice. Mm-hmm. Oh, to- totally. So I want to, um, let's talk about your book. And the way I, I want to get into it is um, for me, watching your career grow and blossom, you know, I, we talked early on about you doing all this consulting work about inclusive language and, and talking to companies about how to better their internal systems. And then you started writing these newsletters that were coming out on LinkedIn, which are great and topical. And then it seemed the most natural thing to say, all right, I'm just going to make a book out of this. So you were kind enough to send me a preprint version of it, which I mostly read over the last couple of days. And it's so good. Yay. So um, this is just a plug for the book for anybody who is interested. The great things about your book from me personally, having read an awful lot of these types of books, is that it's clearly written, really friendly, really to the point, and the stuff that needs to be repeated is repeated. Lots of good stories that are very relatable in it. Uh, lots of places where you you are very clear that there's no one-size-fits-all kind of solution to things, as you find in many, you know, self-help type books where they're trying to encourage everybody to do exactly the same thing. And, and because you're a linguist, of course, the context is all important. And I absolutely love the sections at the end where you have great discussion questions and then also a list of inclusive language substitutions, like just to, here's an easy chart that you can flip to and find some things. So all of those things, I think, make the book really worthwhile. And it's all 
from a linguist, from a sociolinguist point of view, it's all kind of common sense, right? There's nothing in it that's super tricky or forcing you to bend your mind in different ways. It's just, you read it and you're like, huh, that totally makes sense. Yeah, that's the way we should be doing things. So that's what I got out of it. Well, you can't hear my broad smile, but I have been doing (laughs) fist pumping and broad smiling because everything that you picked up was what I was putting down, like Mm -hmm. an explicit list of things. I thought about authorial tone. I thought about, by the way, I had to transform it. When I, uh, my, my agent was shopping this around and didn't quite understand that it wasn't just an an inclusion book and DEI books in the pandemic, a lot of them had come out. So people were like, oh, it's not performing well. I'm like, oh, this isn't just a DEI book. Mm -hmm. Like, let me explain the value proposition. But anyway, so there was an acquisition editor at my publisher and my book proposal was very completist. Like the book transformed with help. I hired a developmental editor, but also my acquisitions editor said, you can't have a 29 chapter book because I wanted it to be like a year long thing mm-hmm. once like for every month here's like practice now do this now practice this and he said and some of the chapters were going to be three pages long like internet speed and mm-hmm. he said people look at the the contents of a book the table of contents and decide if they can read it or not I'm like oh really I've never done that I'm like I never do that like I look in the middle and see if it's interesting you know so he said so I ended up with a nine chapter book uh, eight chapters in an intro and then my developmental editor helped me. And then I had already honed the tone on LinkedIn. So LinkedIn was a fantastic way to see what gets uptake and what mm-hmm, doesn't. Because mm-hmm. as a professor, there were things that I knew, if you really want to proceed in linguistic anthropology or sociolinguistics, these are concepts that you must have and these are skills you must have. So I had to teach to what do people need to know. Here, people aren't going to do the uptick if they don't think it's necessary. So there are things that I've thrown by the wayside. And a lot of what's in the book has been tested through workshops or through LinkedIn. Like, did it go viral? You know, I I talked about guys um, on LinkedIn and how guys is not inclusive because if you run, I just came up with semantic heuristics. I'm like, I didn't even look for them. I'm like, I don't need a semanticist to tell me. Like, here's three semantics heuristics that you can do. And for each one of them, guys is reading as male only. So guess what? Uh, male-only words, have male-only mental models, and so this is not an inclusive word. So that got a lot, a lot of uptake. And so um, my developmental editor helped me remove, she said, huh, this feels like a linguistic digression. Like I had to always fight against my professorial urge to be completist. I'm like, there's stuff I know that's changed my life. The book is a compressed version of my own learning journey, right? Mm -hmm, From mm -hmm. before grad school till now. So I'm I'm not taking people and I include stories where I said bad things. I'm like, ooh, I still remember this thing I said. Um, So it took a lot of work to get it into this place and a lot of honing and a lot of cutting and a lot of years of practicing how to talk about these things Mm -hmm. with people who don't have to learn about it. I always had full classes when I was a professor because I cared and I was good. I was tough, but I was good. So my classes were always full. But when I became a consultant, I'm like, oh, nobody has to take a class of mine. Mm -hmm. Like nobody has to take a workshop. So you have to figure out what's the pain point? What am I solving? So thank you so much. To me, it's very logical. But when I was narrating the audiobook last week, which P.S. is exhausting, Mm -hmm. exhausting. And I thought I was done with the book. 
And then I'm like, oh, I have to read it all. And then guess what? You have to proof it all. So I had to listen to myself for four hours. Oh, I hate that. (laughs) And so I was so horrified and I was complaining to some consultants I'm working with. And they're like, well, I guess it's proof you're not a raging narcissist. Because I was like, I can't listen to my own voice anymore. They were like, well, some people would love it. I'm like, oh, yeah. But I was very proud of myself with this book. I think I did a really good job, which is not a thing I usually say about myself and my work, but I've been seeing resistance in the bodies and words of undergrads for 25 years ago when I was TAing. I would present things that to me were just peer-reviewed science. And I was early in my career as a linguist. And I'd be like, and I would see resistance body language because I care about teaching. And so I had to find ways to bypass the resistance and sort of tricks and, and ways of introducing material to get people to agree with something that if you're using a terminology or a label or you present the finding up front, then they'll have the resistance. And so it's literally 25 years of teaching resistant people and figuring out what the uptake is that I've poured into this book. Mm-hmm. And then I had to make it so it worked on a page. But yeah. I think it works. I'm really, it does. I'm really happy with it. I think the length of the chapters, the examples that you give, the way you lead people through the reasoning, I will say, is uh, it's very business oriented for one thing. Like I could, I can see that business folks will appreciate this, but it's not so, it's not like reading an article in Fortune. You know, it's, it has the linguistic background to it that supports everything that you say. What I love is that all at every point along the way, as you point out a thing that is not so good, you give the alternative for what is good. And again, it's never a one size fits all. It's like, consider these alternatives, which is, I think, the kindest way that you can present that kind of information to people. Because as you said before, they don't want to be taught, right? <laughs> they don't want you to tell them what to do. You need to lay out a few options for them. And and I would add to that, that I... Sometimes people get disappointed because they just want an answer. Like uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I come in and help a comms department at a large conservative oriented, just conservative in terms of um, they do finance, right? So I don't mean politically. I just mean sort of uh, not not wanting to sound woke, right? And so um, I, you know, and so I say to people. In fact, the audio engineer just yesterday had to go and do pickups and fix 18 little mistakes. And so at the end, he said, um, he said, first of all, I wish my high school were, I wish my high schooler was learning this instead mm-hmm. of another Holocaust mm-hmm. thing. He's like, I wish there was a quarter of this in high school. Yeah. Um, every person who works on this book in some way comes back and tells me of an application for it. Mm-hmm. I honestly wrote the book to be business friendly, but also my first thought was, grandparents of trans children and maybe parents of trans children, right? Um, How do you make sure when somebody's going through this difficult, painful thing that is so hard on somebody's mental health? I mean, like 40%, I think, uh, maybe 42% of transgender people in the U.S. have tried tried suicide, Mm -hmm. Not, not considered. 80 something percent have considered. So what can we do to soften that up? And so I I wanted to make sure that maybe somebody got bought the book by their manager. You know, the head of HR buys it for all people managers, right? Is one thing because heads of HR come and like, I need you to train my people managers. Here are the problems we're finding. And every example in the book is a real example. Like they're Mm -hmm. all from my examples database. I'm not making any of them up. Like this is a hundred percent real data that I'm just anonymizing. 
Um, but anyway, he said, I, I wish my, my, my kid's school had this. And so, um, for me, like, I think one example is, um, even before that yesterday I was reading a DEI, um, person on LinkedIn who writes really interesting things. He reads a lot of DEI books and summarizes them, diversity, equity, inclusion for people who are not, um, up on what, what's going on in the industry. And he was writing recently about rhetoric and how, um, going back to the old Greek ideas of rhetoric and uh, ethos, logos, and pathos. And the idea is that for my book, I want, he said, too many DEI people rely on pathos and it's not enough to convince people. A sad story isn't enough. And for me with the book, I tried to weave between at all times the idea of appealing to people's empathy and human nature. Here's a story about something that went badly for somebody. We, we don't want that to happen, right? You mm -hmm. don't want to do that to somebody. And then the logic of it, which is where the rigorous social science comes in, and some of it's my own original analysis. And then uh, the third part is the way out. You know, sometimes mm -hmm, I think so mm -hmm. much of the world is telling people, hey, you're in a pit, best of luck. And I'm like, well, what What if I give you the rope ladder out of the pit? Like, you got to climb it. It's not, uh, it's not super easy. Like, you know, it's, I'm not, I'm not lifting you out myself. But, um, and so that's why I say to people things like, um, I can't be the final arbiter of what works for you in your community, mm -hmm. right? Like you might be in group and they'll go ahead, say tranny, you know, you might be in group, go ahead and say this word that I'm not going to say, or you might be going to this broad base of people and you're going to have to maybe do an asterisk and say, um, we're going to say disabled people. Uh, but we understand that some people prefer people with disabilities. We've made this choice because we're following American disability activists who have recommended this to us, right? Some way so that you make it transparent and say, I know there's a choice. I know things are going on. This is a carefully considered thing where we've taken things into account as opposed to because then people will forgive a lot when you're showing that you're making an effort, mm -hmm. you're being careful, you're inviting feedback, you are transparent. It, it buys you so much goodwill. And I think people are so afraid of being canceled that they're afraid to say anything. And I'm like, but, but the paralysis of fear just leaves things in their, in their current mm -hmm. position. And the current position is not a good one. Like we got it. We got to shift. So how do I get people to shift in a way that feels um, pleasant? Uh, one more thing, and then I'm going to let you speak is that, um, uh, I hired some people to help me develop new offerings because I'm going to level up with the book is going to level up the kinds of clients and offerings that I have. And so, I mean, I have big clients already, but, um, and so one of them is just a regular business dude, like a white New Yorky business dude. And he read the book and he called it like Pringles. He said, well, it's like Pringles. He's like, you're halfway done before you realize you're like, oh, <laughs> Because he has to read a lot of business books and they're awful, right? They're awful. They're terrible. Yes. They're terrible. And he said, it's like Pringles. I'm like, like Pringles from a business dude is like maybe the best encomium mm -hmm. I'm going to get. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, I, I did want to mention, uh, because it was on my mind having um, 
the the last podcast that we put out this this month of September was with Kate Mesh, who does mm-hmm. disability access stuff, and I was um, really delighted that she went to some lengths to explain that different terms are used in different even English speaking countries. So terms that are used in America are terms that are are different in the UK when you're talking about disabled people or people with disabilities, and this is another area that again people just need to be aware of. You know that it might be different. They speak English, but it's not the same English as you. And I, I am sure that it is different in Australia and Hong Kong and India and New Zealand and every place else that they speak English that isn't the United States. And you can't be an expert in them all, but just to know that there might be something different in a different place. It's fine. Just respect it. That's all you need to do. Well, and and I would add to that that I I'm continuously through the book. So I, I gave in the book early on. I wanted the book to be more global, and my publisher said make it American. And I said mm-hmm. okay. So I put a caveat in the front. I'm like, if you're deaf, my principles of inclusive language will apply, and you just have to translate them for sign language. If you're speaking English in another country, a lot of my examples will work, but some of them aren't going to work, and you're going to mm-hmm. have to do that translation work on your own. And so one of the reasons, I there are a bunch of reasons why the, the book is organized around six principles of inclusive language that I've come up with. Originally, I had two when somebody asked me a thing, and I found, I'm like, well, don't do this and don't do that. And then I kept on running more case studies through it, and I'm like, oh, got to add this, got to add this, and I ended up with six. Um, but my idea is I really am trying to, oh, the word is so overused, but empower people to have productive discussions on their own. Mm-hmm. And this is guardrails where people can understand that they're not going to go off the rails and um, and ruin things because it allows them to talk about things in a granular way, in a specific way, in a very linguistic way. So they can say to people, okay, who are we marginalizing if we say people with disabilities? Or whose voice are we not hearing? Are we treating people with enough respect? And are we recognizing the pain points that people have? Is this word bad for them? So if you're doing, um, like for a, if you're a communications person and you're writing a profile, I I explain, you know, mirror the language that people use and then you're, you're good unless it's an in-group term that's been reclaimed. So like, for example, if you're at this, for example, a conservative culture financial firm and you're profiling someone who refers to herself as queer, you can't use queer outside of the quotes. You can say who refers to herself as queer. You can say the quote where she talks about herself as queer, but you're not licensed as an entity to say queer. Mm -hmm. I'm like, but you can go through that in a lot of ways with all these different things. You can talk to in-group members and say, what can I say as an out-group member? And the one thing is with a group, you're almost guaranteed that people are going to disagree and people are going to have very strong voices. So on LinkedIn in the, the same week, I saw one person say, I'm doing consulting with an indigenous group. And they said, it's important that we're called indigenous. This is in the US context. They must be called indigenous. And somebody chimed in and they're like, oh, I'm doing consulting with a native group. And they told me they hate indigenous and everyone has to be called native. Right. So these are people who are trying to share with LinkedIn. a thing that they were told was a universal. The new term is this. And so I, you know, wrote a post the other day and I'm like native slash indigenous asterisk. And I'm like, people have different preferences, you know, mm-hmm. like, so uh, I, I want people to be set up for a discussion and the respect that comes with a discussion rather than um, trusting a single person to be an arbiter because that person ain't always right. Right. And, and it, there are so many different 
um, social situations in which it's going to be different across the country, even though we supposedly all speak American English and mm. depending on the age group as well. Um, you know, as I was reading sections of the book, first, I, I did want to mention yours is the first book about this kind of language inclusivity that talks specifically about autistic people mm. that I've, I've seen in a book. And so that's amazing and great. And all books should have this, but you so rarely see it. Um, I am on Tumblr a lot. That that's an admission from me. And the is way that the blep is that your blep area? <laughs> that is no. That that's more on um, Reddit actually. Oh sure. But uh, Tumblr is for young people generally. Although there's a lot of old really people like me. yeah. Tumblr is is like young <laughs> young young people, and the discussions that happen there around um, language are kind of mind blowing because. There are a lot of, and I'll use the word here because they self-identify, queer young people mm. who are just up for playing around with language and don't feel bound by rules. Mm. And it really makes you think when you see people who are so comfortable with shifting words and shifting meanings and, and changing their pronouns on a daily basis. And then you really start to get this big picture like, hey, man, it's just, it's language, really. We're allowed to change it. There's not a lot of stuff that's carved in stone. So um, I feel your book is, is a nice entree into the bigger world of kind of sitting there and going, hmm, what's really real, you know? <laughs> like, what, what, what do we actually mean? What is language? There, there's a lot of that in there. And, and I would add, so I worked with two autistic linguistic grad students. So when I talk about in-group activists here, in-group specialists, and uh, in fact, I just mailed off a, a thank you book to one of them uh, yesterday. And I, and I worked a lot. Now, I had already come up with my own analyses based on lurking extensively in autistic areas where people who are autistic are talking to each other, especially people who are women and autistic, because women are expected to do all this emotional labor and be more socially adept, et cetera. And so people are writing like, what the F is going on? Like this thing happened. And so watching autistic people explain a list of communication to each other and clarify their own things was so useful to me. And then having these linguists who are studying as their dissertation research, who are studying autistic communication norms was very, very useful. And I had an autistic person volunteered for free because I was paying sensitivity people and subject matter experts out of pocket. God forbid my publisher give me the money for that. But I, I I had black people reading, queer people reading, trans people reading, autistic people reading. Like if there's a marginalized group that I spend a good amount of time on, I had them reading the relevant pages. And um, this person had attended a fireside chat of mine where his entire research organization, it's all PhDs pretty much, had taken my LinkedIn learning course on inclusive language. And then the cap of it was bringing me in for a fireside chat where they really put me through my paces. I had to really prep for this thing. Um, and then he was so excited because I talked explicitly about the marginalization of autistic people and autistic comms, and including from DEI efforts and how it was the wave of the future and we needed to get on it now. And he voluntarily read the entire book and then had so many comments. If you think about the literality and the assiduous nature of a lot of autistic mm -hmm. communications, right? And this is a researcher. And so I said to him, I please understand that almost all of my work has been streamlining this book. And I asked other people, you know, I had people like in my family, I'm like, read this. I'm like, and tell me if something sounds woke to you, because I'll rephrase it in a more granular way. Because what I'm trying to do is 
appeal to logic and common sense and be like, this is just etiquette. Don't like, mm-hmm, I'm thinking about mm-hmm. people who care about, I'm like, this is just etiquette. Don't you want to be polite? Here's how to be polite. And so anything that might trigger resistance, I'm, I can always phrase in a more granular and more scientific way. And so this family member said, oh, I'm reading a lot about autistic people. It feels like, uh, like a lot. And I'm like, not if you're autistic. I'm like, <laughs> exactly. I'm like, not if you're the autistic one. I'm like, well, it has to be part of the discourse because it has to be part of the discourse. So I'm very happy with it. And I refresh my um, workshops every year. And right now I'm about to do a, another series for uh, a large search engine oriented tech company. And um, I might mean Bing. And uh, I, I don't though. Um, and I'm now, I inserted the autistic, holistic comms differences as as often as I could, mm-hmm. especially because tech is such a home for it. it, it tech totally. jobs can be so um, aligned with autistic ways of working and working in the world. And so um, one of the facilitators in India, um, I need an in-house facilitator to run breakout groups. And he had taken this training the year previously when it was only for managers in this division. And he said, I'm so happy to see during a breakout room, he said, I'm so happy to see this new autistic and holistic information here in India. The diagnoses have been skyrocketing and we don't know if it's a change or just better diagnoses, but people are learning things, but it feels like it's at the beginning. And this already has been so helpful thinking for me, mm-hmm. you know, thinking about reports and, and how I can work with them. That was during the workshop, right? Mm-hmm. So so I, I wrote back to my sensitivity reader. I'm like, I'm going to put in whatever I can of yours in my workshops, but this book has to get holistic people through it and changing. And then, you know, we'll work like, well, I'll have to do an autistic deep dive at some point. He's like, fair enough. He didn't even like the subtitle. He's like, they're not simple principles. I'm like, I know, I know, (laughs) but I have to sell this book to people. So I'm sorry. Uh, Let me uh, reiterate, because I'm not sure that we mentioned it out loud. The title of the book is The Inclusive Language Field Guide. Uh, Sen, it's got a lovely little picture of some binoculars on the cover, which is awesome. And I I love the concept of a field guide. Also, you explain it a little bit in terms of birding in the introduction. And uh, it's a book that I, I think will be applicable, as you were saying, in so many different situations. Wouldn't it be amazing if this was a book that kids got to read in high school that was part of sociolinguistics classes that were taught all over the place? I think it would make a a huge amount of difference. And I'll tell you that my developmental editor, I told you everyone I work with has an application for this, which is, it Mm -hmm. really makes my heart swell. So she stopped working with me in November, was the end of our time. And in May, she said, can you talk to my creative writing class in July? Uh They need to hear your insights because they want to write, for example, a black character, but it's like they're putting a black skin over a white character and they don't understand how things are different. So she wanted me to explain positionality. And so she brought me in to talk to the creative writer. So even like, I I would say even for that, you know, like there are areas where I hadn't thought about application for people who are writing fiction, even though explicitly in the book, I say, hey, when you're reading a book by a white writer, very often the only people who are marked for race are not white. And so I'd like to recommend if you're going to talk about race, you talk about everybody's race because we pretend that white is not a race. Like white is the default (laughs) and race is about other people. And I'm like, but that gives us a very skewed mental model and a very skewed basis for reasoning. So I I really am pleased and I have to figure out promotion because my life's work is harm mitigation. And so for me, leaving academia was hard because I thought 
that I was doing harm mitigation by training people and how to more clearly see the world and debias their vision in elite so, you know, in elite universities in groups of between 40 and, uh, well, between 20 and 400. So I felt like that was my life's purpose. And so I had to find it again. And this book to me feels like a really good extension of that harm mitigation. And mm-hmm. so this is the way I'm, I'm doing that, you know, the, for me, promoting the book is actually about the more people who read the book, the more people are going to recognize when they're saying harmful and painful things mm-hmm. and can stop. And to me, that's really meaningful and valuable. And so I'm willing to be uncomfortable and and do book promotion to get that greater good across. Do you think, for people who are listening, uh, I I know that there will be some percentage who have similar training and who are very interested in this. Do you think there will be um, jobs that will be doing this, like say in-house at large companies. I know that they have DEI training type stuff already, but this is specifically focused on a certain type of linguistic anthropology. Do you, you know, you're one of the few people who are doing it. I know that there are others Mm. out there, but do you see this opening up to having more people do this kind of training? I think that we're at early stages. Mm -hmm. Um, And one thing that I'm working with the people that I'm working with, the consultants I'm working with for offerings is figuring out how do you turn this into training that really reaches people in companies? Because companies, okay, it's early stages. I have to do work. I'm going to do work. I'm going to do little think pieces and posts and maybe a newsletter. Like how, how are people, how, how is a company hemorrhaging money because of problematic language? Here are the ways that I have found in my consultantly in my consulting work with companies here here are like the top 4 ways that companies lose money because of problematic language i think as this idea cuz it has to be all bottom line when companies start to recognize how um an ounce of prevention no an ounce of cure I don't know, whatever it is, Ben Franklin, that <laughs> basically do a little training and it's, it's less painful down the road, whatever. There's like three ways to say it. Right. Um, pound of cure. Okay. A pound, yes. An ounce yeah. of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I believe Stitch that's in time saves nine. Saves nine. I think, <laughs> and I think there's a, I think there's another one. So Ben Franklin was a smarty pants. So the thing is that I think that we're early on. And if I do this work and other people are out there doing that work, that really connects the dots between Mm. problematic language slash linguistic ignorance, right? Like an ignorance of linguistic principles that enable people to make better decisions. If you can connect that to pain points, then people will be willing to pay. Mm -hmm. But I think that you would have to make a very strong case now And also, I'm just going to say this, DEI money is like, I had 40K of business disappear at the beginning of this year Mm -hmm. um, while I was very busy with my book. So I kind of was like, but I watched it disappear, stuff that I teed up in November. And then it went away company after company. And I was like, oh, bye money. I will miss you. Um, So there's a lot of stuff that is disappearing budget wise. And so finding ways outside of explicitly inclusion but like, how can you get better with your language or finding other ways to phrase it, I think is the way that will get more business. Also, I just have to say that um, if you are leaving academia, don't begin by creating your own infrastructure. Even I didn't. And I was already consulting. Like I had a year of a bridge job before I, I launched. And I also had a guaranteed government project with a lot of money. 
right? So there was a, like, I went and I stole a contract from, from people I was subcontracting to who were treating me and my employees very badly, my subcontractors very badly. So um, I don't know that I would try to, the jobs aren't there yet. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't go, I wouldn't try to um, create my own consultancy if I don't have a wad of cash that I'm sitting on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would start by plugging into someone else's infrastructure and see how they're framing these things. But um, I'll train your sales team to do better. Uh, there's a lot more money in that than learning and development. You know, yeah, people yeah. don't care about retaining employees, even though it's so expensive. They haven't connected the dots to fixing company culture. Yeah. They're all about recruiting, which yep. to my mind is, um, I will say, short-sighted. I was so going to say gonna that. leave it at that. Yeah, very short-sighted. So, okay, that that's kind of what I thought, but it is encouraging that... You were able to get a book and get it published by a, a real publisher mm-hmm. and that people are interested in this sort of thing because I, I agree with you. I think that it is just at the very beginning and there are plenty of linguists out there who are able to speak with authority on this subject and do it in the way that you have, which is not to make it teaching, to right. make it digestible and unthreatening and just kind of let's let's be nice to people let's be polite and make everybody's lives a little bit better it doesn't cost much to do it really and truly and and I'll and I'll add that it's based in real science i mean this mm-hmm. is the thing this is the thing so my ability to finish and get the phd has helped me a lot and that gives me a lot of credibility especially in tech and other areas where people can be libertarian and skeptical mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um linguists can come and speak from a science basis yes uh, the logos rather than the pathos. And I think that really is what people respond to. Mm-hmm. No, totally agree. It's it's the science. And that's, as you were saying earlier, what linguists are really, really good at, right? Mm. Learning and researching and organizing and seeing patterns and pulling meaning out of stuff that can just seem like a pile of data. That's what our linguistic training is about. And that's what we are really, really good at in all sorts of industries. This has been fantastic. And boy, I have kept you way longer than I mean <laughs> meant to do. So um, this has been really fantastic. I will put in the links uh, in the show notes for people to order your book. Uh, is it okay if I put your LinkedIn profile in there in case people would like to contact you? Please do. And you can also contact me through my website. Because of the book, I now have SuzanneWertheim.com, which is separate mm-hmm. from my business website. Um, so there's a nice contact form there as well. I, I, that one, in fact, I'm going to say that one's a little better because my LinkedIn inbox gets clogged with spam. Sure. Yeah. As, as it does for all of us on LinkedIn. So I will absolutely put that in there. Um, this has been so great. And if I didn't say it before, congratulations on getting this book done. I know it was a huge deal for you and it's a, it's a fantastic thing. Thank you. And thank you so much for this opportunity to talk with you in an official way. You and I have been talking linguistics for many years, but I've never talked to you in this genre and format, and it's been super, super fun. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Linguistics Career Launch 2021 was a one-month intensive program intended to familiarize linguistics students and faculty with career options beyond academia in business, tech, government, and nonprofit organizations. Videos of all our recorded sessions are available on our YouTube channel. LCL 2021 was organized by Nancy Frischberg, Alexander Johnston, Emily Pace, Susan Steele, and Laurel Sutton. You can get in touch at linguisticscareerlaunch at gmail.com.